All right, let's uh, turn today to Thessalonians chapter 1, and then you want to keep your finger in Acts chapter 17 as well. Originally, I was going to uh, go to the book of the Acts of the Apostles since we finished up the Gospel of Mark, Uh, but I decided instead to go to uh, this letter written to the people of Thessalonica many, many hundreds of years ago because it still applies so much to the time in which we live today. In our scripture reading told the story of the founding of this church during the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, accompanied by Silas and Timothy. And really the circumstances in many of these Old Testament or excuse me, these uh, ancient churches, is not a whole lot different from circumstances we find ourselves today. So as God wrote these words to those churches, they still apply to us today. He's written them to us today, and there's much in them that uh, we can apply to our own lives and our own church. And as we shall see, this particular church was a wealthy city, like many cities in the modern world, especially in the United States of America. But wealth is not always a good thing because it cuts into our dependence upon God to take care of our needs. We'll also find that this was an idolatrous and immoral town, again, reflective of the age in which we are living. We often uh, pine for the good old days, but you know what? The good old days weren't any better than the days we live in now. You can go way back, uh, even previous to the New Testament church age, and people were just as uh, sin-laden then as they are now, and that's the problem with humanity. And so the Lord plants a church in this city. It's an ideal place to reach that whole region And uh, we'll see how the Lord does that. We also know that there was a very large Jewish population in this city. Uh, Paul was not able to remain very long there because of a group of unbelieving Jews who stirred up trouble uh, for the missionary enterprise. And one of the reasons he wrote to the church uh, was to commend their continued faithfulness in the face of that persecution. Now, Paul also needed to defend his reputation because this group of uh, unbelieving Jews were spreading lies about him. He couldn't let that stand uh, because he didn't want the people to believe that those things were true, and he didn't want that to upset the church and prevent it from growing. And uh, the church also was concerned about fellow believers who had died before the return of the Lord, which they were expecting at any time. So he encourages them and and, uh, uh, reinforms them about what he had taught about the Lord's return. Now, we come up to our modern times in America. The true church is facing increased persecution as we minister in post-Christian times. The gospel needs to be defended, and believers need to be faithful and stalwart, and our hope needs to be focused in the return of Christ. So as we begin our study today, we're going to, first of all, review these missionaries that God sent to establish the church, 
and then look to the background of the city in which it was located, and again cite some reasons why Paul wrote this letter. And as Paul encouraged the church back then, he also encourages us today. So let's ask God's blessing as we continue. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful today for your word, uh, which is your truth, which encourages us today. And Lord, we're thankful that these letters written by uh, Paul and other apostles are not musty, old, insignificant things. Lord, they apply to us today. And as we review how this church started, uh, help us to realize that you have planted this church as well as other Bible-believing churches all over our country and the world, and that we're part of that mission today. So we just pray your blessing as we continue in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Now you'll notice as Paul begins this epistle or this letter, he does so in the same way he usually does. And back in ancient times, uh, when you wrote a letter, you didn't sign your name at the end, sincerely so-and-so, you put your name at the beginning. So people knew right away uh, who was being, uh, who they were uh, receiving their letter from. And we, most of us, I should say, this morning are familiar with the Apostle Paul. We know who he is, but some of us are not. So let's just uh, kind of review here some things about the Apostle Paul. And he's writing some weeks or maybe months after his exit from this city, probably around 51 AD. So that's within two decades of Christ's death and crucifixion. Now, uh, again, these people would have immediately recognized this group of men because they were the founders of their church. They're the ones who preached the gospel and brought them into the kingdom of God. So right off the bat, they, they would recognize this as a great word coming from these men. Uh, so let's, uh, again, be thoughtful of Paul. Many would consider him today as among the most faithful and humble and powerful Christians who ever lived, maybe even the greatest. So Paul was originally Saul of Tarsus. That was a, a province of Cilicia, a Roman province. So he is what we call a Hellenized Jew. He lived outside of the land of Judea. He was a faithful Jew, but he was a blasphemer and an unbeliever concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. He was commissioned to go far and near, dragging Christians into Jewish courts to be tried there and uh, sentenced to prison or fines or even death. And you'll remember in the book of Acts that he was responsible for the persecution uh, and the execution of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church. So this was no really good guy when he started out uh, and before he got saved. But in Acts, it tells us that one day as he's traveling to the city of Damascus to wreak more havoc on the church, that Jesus came to him in a flash of brilliant light. He realizes sinfulness and he asks the Lord, what must I do? And of course, Jesus from that point began to control his life. Now, uh, he became the apostle to the Gentiles. 
and he headed up three missionary journeys um, that uh, uh, set up uh, uh, several cities as far west perhaps as Spain and then into northern regions. He spoke in synagogues, public forums, even before kings and queens. And at the end of his life, he appeared in Caesar's court, the emperor of the world, and gave testimony there of his Christian faith. So God widely used this man in ancient times to establish his church. And on his second missionary journey, he arrives in this city of Thessalonica. Now, the second person is Silvanus or Silas. He was a Judean Christian, so he lived in the area of Judea, perhaps even Jerusalem, and he accompanied Paul on this second missionary journey. Back in Acts chapter 15, he's one of the men selected to go to Antioch. Now, this would have been years before and minister with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas in that northern city uh, that was kind of like the first missionary church of the ancient times. And in that same chapter, he's called a prophet who exhorted and strengthened the brethren. So again, he's a well-known, uh, gifted man that God calls and uses. Now, when Paul and Barnabas split up for this second missionary journey, Paul chose Silas to go with him. Barnabas took Mark. And so now they had two missionary teams going out. And as we read earlier, uh, uh, Silas accompanies Paul when they arrive at this church and together uh, God uses them to encourage them in the faith. And after that journey, however, it seems like he just kind of fades off the scene and we don't see very much more of Silas. Now, Timothy is a young man whom Paul met on his first missionary journey in the town of Derby. And his mother was a Jew, his father a Greek. And it seems by the meaning of his name that his mother had some high hopes for this young man because it means honoring God. And indeed, as we read our Bible, we find that God did use him and he did honor God in his life. Now, Paul took Timothy with him on the rest of the first missionary journey. We're not sure, though, on this journey uh, if he was with Paul and Silas when they first arrived in Thessalonica. He might have stayed back in uh, Philippi to encourage the church there. But either way, we know that from chapter 3 in Thessalonians that Paul sent him to the city to see how they were progressing because he was concerned about them. And either way, the church would have known Timothy personally as well. Paul viewed this young man as a son in the faith, and his name is included in four of his epistles, as well as the two that he wrote personally to Timothy as a pastor. Now, these ministers give us a clear picture of the diversity of the early church's background. Paul and Silvanus were Jews, one Hellenized, uh, one in the uh, area of Judea, but they both had Roman names. So there's a Roman and Jewish connection. Silas, uh, uh, as I mentioned, from Jerusalem. Timothy then had a Greek name and a Greek father, 
but a Jewish mother. He also was Hellenized, but there's that connection with the Jews, that connection with the Gentiles. So these men were perfectly prepared for ministry to the Jew first and then to the Gentile in every city where God led them. So just as they were the Lord's missionaries then, so we are now. Maybe not in official capacity, but certainly as members of the Lord's church. So let's take a look now at how this church got going. Uh, Back in Acts chapter 17, we have a bit of a description of the city. Uh, Originally, uh, Thessalonica was named Thermae. And that in Greek means hot springs. So that suggests that there were some hot springs there, maybe a spa, people collecting there. But it was also located in a very strategic spot on the northern shore of the Bay of Thermae, which was in the northwestern section of the Aegean Sea. So that gave them the ability to trade with all parts of the world in that day, they could all go all the way down to the Mediterranean Sea and then points east and west from there. <clears throat> now, in their ancient history, 315 BC, uh, it was renamed Thessalonica by Cassander in honor of his wife, who incidentally was the half sister of Alexander the Great. So he's uh, in a position where he knows some people who have authority. Now, as time goes by, this city became the capital city of the Roman province of Macedonia. And remember, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia calling to him, saying, come over and help us. And that was really the, uh, the founding point of them going to Philippi and then ending up in Thessalonica. Now, that was back in 146 BC. So all these cities were uh, especially uh, Roman cities in these provinces who were given the gift of Roman citizenship were quite proud of that, and that's going to really develop into a problem for Paul in Thessalonica. Now, again, being a port city, that meant all kinds of people from all parts of the world were coming in there, so it was a cosmopolitan uh, city. The Ignatian Way, which was a trade route going from east to west, passed through there. It was really kind of the gateway into the eastern regions of the world. And so it became a very rich city, a very populated city, well over 100,000. Some may think it was about 200,000. Back then, that would have been a very large city. And today, this city still exists as Salonika. It's the second largest city in Greece with over a million people. So not very many cities back then uh, still exist today. But this ancient city was also paganistic and corrupt. As most cities of the ancient uh, Greek and Roman world were polytheistic and caught up in their ancient mythologies, so was this particular city. And as such, it was morally bankrupt. One commentator writes, uh, uh, um, Thessalonica never acquired a reputation for immorality like Corinth, yet immoral practices were frightfully common in its idolatrous society. Immorality was fostered under the protective shield of religion and the wanton rites connected with worship of the Kabiri 
deities of Samothrace. So in their ancient worship, in their religious systems, uh, this was acceptable. But of course, in God's eyes, it was horrendous. So it's in this city, this wealthy city, uh, carried away by false idols, involved in all kinds of debauchery, God brought his people. He brought these men after they had been beaten and imprisoned and kicked out of Philippi, they proceed south to this important city. So let's take a look then at how the church got started back in Acts chapter 17. We're told here that they came in verse 1 to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And this is how Paul would usually start off. He would go to the Jew first. Why would he do that? Well, the Jews were the most familiar with Old Testament scriptures, which would have been messianic in their nature. And so he could really kind of draw them in uh, from their uh, religious background to explain how this person, Jesus, is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. And that's what he did here in verse 2. Uh, he went into them three Sabbath days and explained and demonstrated that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah that God promised to his people so many centuries ago. And the result is good. Uh, there were uh, a number of them persuaded in verse 4, a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now, you all know it's important to get the wife saved because she's the neck that turns the head, right? And so you get the wife, wife saved, maybe you'll get the husband saved. But in either way, back in that time, leading women in the city were very influ- influential. So this was an important thing. Also, the devout Greeks were actually God-fearers who rejected the paganism of the day. Now, that means that they were going to the synagogue, they were in a situation where the Jews were proselytizing them into the Old Testament law, which of course is moral, and that was important, but that's really not what saves you. So when they heard, a whole bunch of them got saved, and then a problem develops because of this. We're told in verse 5, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathered a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. So what are they envious of? Well, they're envious of their synagogue getting emptied out by this guy, Paul, and all the men that they were proselytizing to become Jews uh, are now Christians, and that's depleting our little group of people here. And so they get all the lowlifes out of the city to start this riot. And uh, uh, in their attempt to find Paul, who was probably staying with Jason, uh, they, they couldn't locate him. And they dragged Jason out and some other Christians out to their authorities. And they begin accusing them of some very serious things. That they were disloyal to Caesar. 
Now, in this city, if you were disloyal to Caesar, you were in big trouble, especially if they thought you were following another king, this guy Jesus. So this was a very serious situation, very serious charges, and that may well be why they moved Paul someplace else, got him out of that situation. Now, it's interesting to me here, their description of the church's mission down in verse 6. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. So they've got a reputation. And in their thinking, in their mindset, these guys are turning the world upside down. That's how they would look at it. This sect was challenging their authority and the way that they thought the world should be and the way that they thought God should be taught. But it might better have been said they were turning the world right side up. And that's what the church is supposed to do today. The world is already upside down. We need to turn it upside up, uh, right side up <clears throat> by uh, teaching the truth concerning the Lord Jesus, who is our Savior. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, the authorities then took um, security from Jason and the rest, <clears throat> verse 9, to let them go. What this probably indicates is that they had to make a pledge or a promise uh, that Paul and Silas couldn't stay in the town. It's kind of like kicking them out. And that's what happened. They go then uh, by night to Berea, another town in the region. So the um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> so the Lord has uh, taken His missionary group. He has placed them in this uh, city where there's a lot of wealth, a lot of corruption, a lot of false teaching, a lot of false beliefs, and He has now started His church as He spreads out from Judea and Samaria into the uttermost parts of the world. <clears throat> Incidentally, we might comment on the term church, or the Greek word ekklesia, uh, originally referring to a gathering like a town meeting, where people are called out of their homes to <clears throat> come together <clears throat> and um, be involved in municipal business, municipal decisions. And that's kind of what took place at Thessalonica, only it was totally in a negative way, uh, in a not a very prosperous way, <clears throat> but everybody came together uh, for the wrong reason. But this also had religious connotation, people gathering for some kind of a religious purpose or event. In the Old Testament uh, uh, Greek translation, uh, it was a word used for the Jews gathering together to worship the Lord in their synagogues. So it's not difficult for us to see how this word uh, became a proper way to describe believers in Christ gathering together to worship him. And over time, it lost its Jewish designation and retained its Christian meaning of called out ones. So we are people who are called out from the world, gathering together to worship the Lord and then going out to reach the world from there. One commentator wrote, In the New Testament, the church is always a company of worshiping people who have given their hearts and pledged their lives to Jesus Christ. And the word church 
never refers to a building in the New Testament, although that's often what we use it for today. Now, let's go on then to consider some of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter to this church. And again, partially, it was related to the necessity of this untimely departure. In Acts chapter 17, we're told uh, in verse 2 that Paul reasoned in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, the Jewish day of worship, for three um, weeks. So that's three Sabbath days. That's not a very long period of time. That seems to indicate then that he was in that city for less than a month before he kind of got kicked out. But in another place, we're told that while he was there, he received a gift from Philippi, and he also sent, uh, set up his tent-making business, which makes some think he might have been there a little bit longer. But even if he was there for two or three months, that would not have been long enough to really establish that church. And so he begins to worry about it. And from chapter 3, we know that he sent Timothy back to that church to check things out and to encourage them, and Timothy brings back the good news that they have progressed, they're moving forward, even though they're under persecution. So he writes to commend them about uh, their status with the Lord. Now, there are uh, other purposes as well. Um, First of all, to encourage them in uh, persecution, because when he left, that did not resolve the Jewish antagonism. The church was still uh, experiencing difficulties. Those irate Jews even followed the team to Berea and stirred things up there, and they had to leave Berea. So they were really, uh, really upset about this whole situation. And it may well be that persecution also arose from the uh, citizenry that were loyal to Caesar and erroneously believing the church was trying to usurp that authority somehow by following this King Jesus. Now, if we uh, go to <coughs> First Thessalonians, uh, I want to just show you a couple of uh, verses there that point out that that persecution was ongoing. First of all, if you look at chapter 1, And down in verse 6, you became followers of and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. So this persecution was going on, it seemed like, from the very beginning. And then chapter 2 and verse 14, um, the last part of that verse, for you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. So again, there's affliction going on, there's persecution going on, and then in chapter 3, verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. So he's encouraging them to carry on for the Lord, even though they're going through these stages of persecution. We also find, as we read uh, this epistle, that Paul is defending himself in part of chapter 2 and chapter 3, from accusations that were coming from these um, uh, these Jewish uh, opposers, claiming that Paul was just in it for himself, 
Um, he, he was uh, trying to get them to follow him, so maybe they would give him money, that he wasn't behaving himself properly when he was with them. And so Paul, realizing that this could persuade some people to not follow him anymore or the teachings they were giving, he feels that he needs to again remind them of how they did act when they were there so they wouldn't be turned away in these false accusations. He also deals a little bit with the matters of church life. We're not going to go into those as well, but he does mention uh, abstinence from sexual immorality. From uh, he, he talks about the maintenance of brotherly love and also the failure to work and provide for yourself. You need not to be thinking the Lord's going to come tomorrow so I don't have to work today. No, you keep on doing the right thing until he comes. So he deals with those things in chapter 4 and part of chapter 5. Finally, uh, at the end of chapter 4, he addresses this issue that was chiefly on the mind of the believers there. What happens to Christians that die before the Lord's return? Are they somehow going to miss out on future glory? So the parousia, or the coming of Christ, is a major theme in both Thessalonian epistles, and uh, that, of course, is of interest to us today as well. So these are themes that are are pertinent to modern-day Christians. We ought to thank God for the progress we see in the lives of fellow believers and commend each other for these things and encourage each other to keep on walking with the Lord and uh, uh, to keep on being the kind of Christian that he expects us to be. And also, even in America today, we're beginning to experience increased persecution of the church as we refuse to cave into political correctness and woke theology and this LGBTQ plus ideology we're seeing and a lot of other things that fly in the face of biblical truth. If we stand up uh, against those things, we're going to pay the price as time moves forward. So we need to pray for strength and resolve in these times. We also need to keep on living the way God wants us to and have a clear testimony of our relationship to him. And if people want to defame us like they did Paul, they're going to have to lie in order to do that because we're trusting God to help us live the way he wants us to. And of course, there's always that interest, isn't there, in the coming of the Lord. When's that going to happen? Uh, Are these the signs of the times that we're seeing now? Uh, Well, there have been signs of the times since Jesus was raised from the dead. And they're just getting uh, clearer and more prevalent as time moves forward. So we just need to maintain our hope in that return because we know that eventually the Lord will come. He will straighten things out and he will set up his righteous rule. So these are things that we're going to look into as we continue our study in Thessalonians. Now, let's uh, just close things out here. Uh, by looking back there at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, we've talked about the church, we've talked about the city, we've talked about uh, the men who started the church, and let's just kind of close off here with the greeting. Note, he first of all mentions here their union and our union and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the structure of this phrase, putting those two persons together, 
uh, those names together uh, is a way of showing the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is co-equal with God. There are not two gods. There's one God who manifests himself in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and here we have uh, God the Father, who is author of salvation, God the Son, who is the agent who brought it about by his work on the cross. The Holy Spirit's not mentioned, but we know the Holy Spirit brings to fruition uh, the salvation of God and the life of the believer. So through faith, we're brought into this intimate and eternal relationship with the Godhead. The church is established in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We also see here the full title of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord as a result of his death and resurrection, and that term was the title, uh, again used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for Jehovah, so that puts Jesus on, again, the same plane as the Old Testament God, and he, as Lord, now reigns over his church. Jesus is his human name, which means Savior or Deliverer, and, of course, we know that it was his work that saves us, that delivers us from the penalty and power of sin. And finally, Christ is the equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah, which means the anointed one whom God promised would come and redeem his people. So there all is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul then uh, extends his typical greeting of grace and peace to whoever he writes to. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace and peace, essential elements of our salvation. Uh, When Paul writes, it's more than just a common greeting of, hi, how are you? Hope things are going well. Peace to you. No, he elevates them to their true spiritual meaning for the church. And grace always comes first, followed by peace. Grace reminds us of the grace of God his unmerited, undeserved favor for us is by his grace that we're saved, not by our works. And as a result of receiving that grace, peace comes to your life and to mine. We have a new relationship with God. We're at peace with him. We're at peace within our own souls. And we work to bring peace and relationship to other people. So, um, Uh, These are, again, reminding us of great themes we find in the whole Word of God. So we come to uh, the end this morning. Let's think about some applications here. First of all, we are God's called out ones, and he's planted us in this geographical location. We are recipients of his grace and peace. And we live in an age that continues to largely reject uh, God, reflected by the immoral choices of the day, the behaviors of the day, the making of gods in our own mind that don't really exist. And these replace the one true God. So our mission is similar to the one that was founded in Thessalonica, which is bringing the gospel 
to the lost, wherever they're at, no matter how bad we think we are, they are, we are, in the eyes of God, equally bad. So are we faithful to the task? Are we concerned about the lost in our neighborhoods? Are we doing anything to reach them? That's our mission. It continues today. Then if we are living the way we should, we're going to face some persecution. People will not understand what we believe and why we believe it, and therefore they will call us evil, and they will call us wrong, and they'll call us bad. And we're seeing that today. They view their world as the norm, and they think people like us are turning it upside down, and that's not tolerable. Some are going to give us a hard time as a result, and we need to expect that. And finally, we should always be looking forward to Christ's return and always be living in a way that will please him when he comes. And that day may arrive any time, so we always need to be ready for it. We can't be going to sleep. And may the Lord keep us faithful to these truths as he did to the Thessalonian church and uh, until he comes. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful today that as you planted these churches in ancient times, you continue to do so today. It doesn't really matter what uh, evils are in society. You have promised that you will overcome, that even though the gates of hell uh, should try to shut down your church, it will not succeed. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged that even in the depressing times in which we live, our hope is not in the way the world is, but uh, it is in you and what you will do to change it in the future and really making it not as bad as it could be because your church is here. So, Lord, help us uh, to be faithful to our calling. Help us to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful to you and live for you until you take us home or until you return. And we ask you to encourage us by these things today. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Okay, let's uh, close this morning. Want to tear that off? Okay. With number 495, and again, just kind of reminding us of our responsibility as believers, as God has placed us here in this uh, time and in this area. So let's stand together as we sing a couple of stanzas. 495, a charge to keep I have. <coughs> Thank you.
ways. Thank you for all you've done for us. And help us, Lord, uh, to be like the ancient Thessalonians as we serve you faithfully in our generation. We ask in Jesus' name.